Hey, I'm going to invite John Woodbury to come on up. Um, if you don't, if you don't, oh, look at that. If you don't know John, get to know John. But better yet, get to know his wife. Amen? Right? His wife is phenomenal. Her name's Dee. She serves in our office. And um, I just like her a lot. So I'm going to talk about her. And you could talk about yourself later if you want. Go ahead. Uh, because behind every great man is a great woman. No. Uh, John and Dee are, I, you know, listen, if we had pillars that were to hold this church up, they would be obviously one of them. And so I'm super excited for him uh, to speak today. And uh, I don't know what else Kurt would say about you other than you're a super great guy. So you ready? Ready. All right. Harry, can you hear me? Is this working? That's good. Sometimes I can't hear me. <laughs> I want to talk today about something that uh, Jesus offered us a challenge. Now, when I'm not in church and volunteering and doing other things, I'm a lawyer. Okay? Try not to hold that against me. But being a lawyer today is different than it was in the time of Jesus. I want to start today by telling you about a lawyer who tried to challenge Jesus. Now, he was probably a Pharisee. There were two factions in the Jewish religion at that time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They were sad, you see because they would not be resurrected. <laughs> Never heard that. <laughs> the Pharisees, of course, believed that they were. So they challenged Jesus. You remember the story about if you, you're in heaven and, and had been seven brothers and each married the widow and whose wife would she be? And he said, it's not like that. You don't understand. It's like the angels. He didn't really explain that. Well, anyway, the Sadducee was kind of put down. But the Pharisee, the lawyer, the Bible says, came up and asked Jesus, Jesus, you believe in the law. Which of God's commandments is the most important? Now, you see, that sounds like a, a simple question, but it was actually a trick question because the, the Jews believed that every word from God was just as important as every other word. So if they could get Jesus to say that one of them was more important, then they would have uh, something against him, which was his plan. So Jesus, who was smarter than the average guy, saw through it immediately, and he answered, the most important is you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And the second is likened to it, you shall love the neighbor as you love you. So if we're in that audience, besides not trying to trick Jesus, just listening to the question, we might say, come on, Jesus. All? How can I give all of my heart, soul, and mind to God. I mean, there's still me in this picture, isn't there? And that's our challenge today. You have the opportunity to see 
how Jesus wants you to learn how to give your all to him. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a challenge for me. There come times when the little old me wants to have his way. And I can rationalize and justify and pretend and ignore, but I'm still there. So in order for us to understand what giving your all means, we have to understand how we're made. I want to confess to you that I'm just an ordinary man. I do not come to you today as a professor of physiology, philosophy, theology, but I want to share with you what the Word of God says about how you were made, what the problem is, and what his solution is offered for you, and how finding that solution, you can both, that is God and you, rejoice because his plan is being fulfilled in your life. So what are we as human beings? What are we composed of? The Bible says, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, and God, may the God of peace sanctify you wholly, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved sound and complete and found blameless, blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Three parts, body, soul, and spirit. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about your spirit, which is a subject that doesn't get addressed very much. In um, Hebrews chapter 4, God gives us... Uh, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, penetrating even to the dividing line between soul and spirit and joints and marrow, that being metaphorical description of the body. When God created man, he formed him out of the dust of the ground. And he breathed into him the breath of life as man's spirit and he became a living being unlike the animals that he created. You find that description in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. The spirit that God made and breathed into man is the vehicle by which we have contact and communion with him because he is spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, the word says, For what perceives what passes through a man's thoughts except the man's own spirit within him? Just, uh, just as no one knows or comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. 
in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, Paul also writing says, the spirit, meaning God, spirit, himself testifies together with our own spirit, assuring us that we are children of God. He wouldn't be giving us this if it were not a description of what we really have as a part of our being. We were given that when we were made as human beings. The very first man was given a spirit when God breathed it into him. But let's look at these parts. The body we all know. You're looking at one, right? I stand on two legs. I have two hands. I have five senses. I can hear. I can smell. I can taste. I can touch. And these senses are the mechanism by which we perceive the world around us. And the physical body is what we're given to carry out what decisions we make after we receive by perception the events that we encounter. The soul of man is his immaterial part. Try to find the consciousness of man put it under a microscope and see if you can locate what physical piece of him it is. It does not exist. I like to call that our sixth sense, our consciousness. It's his immaterial part, what the Bible calls the soul. It includes his intellect, the thoughts of his mind, his ideals, his love, his emotions, his discernment, his desires, and most importantly, his will, and how he decides how to act in the face of these perceptions that he receives. We know from the story of, in Genesis that when man fell, he didn't lose his soul. He still could perceive, he still had his five senses, he could still move around and operate, but he lost something, a part of him that was the connector to God, his spirit within him. Either went to sleep or died, use your own metaphor. We know that man fell because he became so dominated by his soul life, that is the rest of him his mind, his intellect, his choices, his feelings, his reactions, that he could no longer recognize what was coming from God and what was coming from himself. In fact, his soul dominated so much that his spirit became almost useless, unknown, dead. And the Bible says that when you pursue this direction without the intervention of God, it leads to death. This condition that existed before you were born again 
left no room in your life for God's plan because you were preoccupied with yourself. So to love the Lord your God with all your mind and your soul and your strength, you couldn't do it. To love your neighbors yourself, you know how hard that is. So what does the Bible tell us about this change that took place that made a difference in how we relate to him? I want to examine the experience that Jesus had with a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. We find it in the Gospel of John chapter 3 where Jesus majestically declares you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And I use the term see, the Bible does, but it probably means more than that, to understand, to comprehend, to know the kingdom of God. So let's examine that experience. Nicodemus was an educated man, a Pharisee. That means he believed in the resurrection of the dead, as I said earlier. And he came to Jesus at night, the gospel writer says. Well, why in the world would he do that? They didn't have lights back then. <laughs> it was dark. No one would know that he was there. He came at night because he was curious about some things about this man that he had seen going around and miraculous things happened in his presence. And he was intrigued by that. Evidently did not believe he was a fake, but could not understand how this could be. So he came at night to get firsthand. Who is this guy? Jesus. And so he asked Jesus. He doesn't really ask a question. He does what we sometimes do. We'll make a statement. But we're really asking a question. You ever heard that? He tells Jesus. Jesus, we know you are a great teacher because all these marvelous things happen around you. We know that God must be with you or these things wouldn't happen. What he really was asking was, if God is in heaven, we know that, and you're here on this earth as a man, how could God be with you? God's up there. And Jesus, being smarter than the average guy, saw through this question and tells Nicodemus, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this really had Nicodemus confused. And like so many of us, he took it literally and said, but Jesus, how can a man get back in his mother's womb and be born again? How can this be? And Jesus answers him with one of the most profound statements to my mind in the Bible. He says, Nicodemus, it's like the wind. We don't know where it comes from or where it goes, but such as it is, with those who are born 
of God in his spirit. And what was he really saying to Nicodemus? Nicodemus, it's not possible to understand in physical terms how these things happen. But you watch and see that they do. And he has more to say to him. <clears throat> and so Jesus, he, Nicodemus asked him again and said, well, okay, how can this be? And he says, unless you're born again, he repeats it. Unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. To Nicodemus, entering meant going into the Holy of Holies in the temple because that's where God lived when he was physically present. But Jesus was telling him, we have seen these things. And that's quite a remarkable statement because no one had been born again yet. Jesus hadn't died on the cross and been resurrected and returned in his Holy Spirit. But he says, we have seen these things. Who is this we he's talking about? I think he's saying, you're looking at him. The writer of the Gospel of John tells us in John chapter 1 that he was God from the beginning. Of course, Nicodemus couldn't understand that. <clears throat> when he says, how can this be? Nicodemus says, how can this be? And Jesus answered him a little bit sarcastically and said, Nicodemus, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? <laughs> now we moderns, with our science and what we've learned over time, maybe understand about where the wind comes from and where it goes and how that works physiologically, physically. But they didn't. But Jesus was speaking in a metaphor. That means using one thing that you can describe, that you understand to explain another. He goes on to tell and explain to him that uh, it's not a matter of understanding, Nicodemus. It's a matter of trust. Putting your trust in God. <clears throat> we hear of Nicodemus again. He shows up at the Sanhedrin when Jesus is on trial and provides sort of a defense for Jesus. And then once again, after Jesus has died and been buried, he goes with Joseph of Arimathea with some of the anointing of the body. So it doesn't really tell us in the Bible what happened to Nicodemus, but I think he finally got it. We may have difficulty understanding some things like try to explain to someone what Einstein's theory of general relativity means. Or better yet, try to understand string or M theory that all matter is nothing but strings of energy, which if you have the code as God does, he could put things together in a different form so miracles don't seem to be as much of a problem. But God being a spirit being, and it clearly tells us that, is speaking from outside of his creation, but also very much from within it. 
if God is spirit and he has put by breathing, and it's a metaphor too, breathing spirit into man so that he has a spirit, what part of the body, soul, and spirit does this exist in? So, if the Bible, if Jesus told you and tells us that you must be born again to see and enter the kingdom of God, is there something more? Does it go beyond that? If just believing enough in that one moment, how does that work for you? To me, it's been an, an adventure. So I want to explore that. And Apostle Paul again wrote in Romans 12 too, and I may have skipped some of these slides. Yeah, Romans chapter 12, verse two. He writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God, even the thing that is good and acceptable and perfect in his sight for you. Paul, having an encounter with Jesus and the inspiration to write as he did, we believe that God's spirit was working through Paul's body, soul, and spirit to give us these truths. And he's telling us that we can be transformed. That is, a new form, a change in our form. How? By a renewing, making new your mind, making it different. So what part of you do you think he's going to use for this renewal process? Before you answer that, let's look at the prayer that Jesus offered just before he went to the cross. We find it in John chapter 17, verse 20 to 22. It's on the screen. Neither for these alone do I pray, but also for those who will ever come to believe in me through their word and teaching, that all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe and be convinced that you have sent me. I have given to them the glory and honor which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. Who's the we here? Jesus is saying that he and the Father are one. And his prayer is that we who come after to believe can become one that same way. I don't know about you, but that's a profound concept. So if you're to become one, what part of you has to change? Body, soul, or spirit. If a man can be one with God who is spirit, then his spirit 
has to be one with God. We have that wonderful encounter when Jesus met with the uh, Samaritan woman in John chapter 7, verse 38. I don't have a slide for it. But remember she came to the well and he's there getting water and we went through the whole literal versus metaphor thing about drawing water and living water. And he tells her, if you accept that your spirit is the vehicle to manifest God's spirit in your soul life, that living waters of abundant life will flow from you and in you, and that this is the only way we can become fully one with him. That's my paraphrase. He said to her, you shall have living waters flowing out of you. So, given these truths from God, I thought God was leading me to share with you my own experience. I was born to a Christian home in Florida. My great-great-grandfather was the first Methodist pastor in the state of Florida in the 1820s. Founded a church that's still there to this day. Our family attended church two or three times a week. I was in Methodist Youth Fellowship. I went to camp. At age 13, I was what they call confirmed in my belief. And I fully believed I was a Christian. But as I got older and drifted away, it became less significant. I finally stopped going to church pretty much altogether. At one point in my life, many years later, about 1974, I had left Boeing and I had gone to law school. And I reached the conclusion with my intellect that I don't believe there's a God. And I had that idea for about two weeks. <laughs> because believing in that, as opposed to believing in a God who had a plan and created the earth and my place in it, required more faith than believing in God. So I said, this can't be. There's too much order in this universe. So what do you do when you don't know? You go looking for answers. So where did I go? I went back to church. I returned to the Methodist church, my roots, and began to study, read the Bible, study all the commentaries, and see if I could figure this out so that I could understand it and know for sure what I believed with my mind. I had an older brother who was called into the ministry when he was a teenager. I believe to this day that our father, who had a real problem with later in my growing up, was trying to make, remake us in his image as farmers. And my brother was an intellectual, very bright guy. When he died and at his funeral, his psychiatrist told me that he's, your brother was one of the smartest people I ever knew. Anyway, I believe to this day that my brother found a way out of my father's plan for his life. Because my father would not go against the church. So he chose, he announced that he would be a minister and everyone rejoiced. They had him preaching uh, all the way through high school and college and 
he went to seminary, a liberal seminary in New York City. And it, when it came time to get assigned to a church, he said, I can't do it. So he had two choices. He could just tell him, no, sorry, I'll do something else, which would have been the wiser course. Or he could say, I don't believe in God. And he chose that path. I argued with him over the years, <laughs> unsuccessfully. But he suffered from depression, I think, is a product of those choices he made. And it got so bad, he, he left. After seminary, he went back to college and got his master's, loved English literature, and a PhD from Emory University. His doctoral dissertation was on Ulysses by James Joyce. He analyzed over 200 characters. I don't know if you've ever tried to read Ulysses. I can get to about 20 pages. There are too many metaphors and references. But anyway, that's beside the point. Anyway, uh, he was at Baylor University on the faculty, and his depression got so bad that he couldn't get up in the morning. And I remember praying for him. And God brought him home. He took a leave of absence, which is the university's nice way of saying you're fired. <laughs> Unlike maybe Donald Trump. <laughs> anyway, he came back to Florida and lived with my mother. And uh, we became friends again. And, and I knew he loved English literature. And I was in the midst of my reevaluation, reacquainting myself with the intellectual understanding of how, who God is and how it all works. And an English former pastor, I think he was, or maybe, I can't remember the office he held, by the name of John Stott, wrote a book called Basic Christianity, and was coming to Tallahassee, which was our home, Florida. And I thought, I'll get my brother to go hear John Stott. He likes English. He's an Anglophile, they call it. And he agreed to go. Well. I got the book out again and was rereading it, like typical lawyer fashion, you know, to prepare yourself for your case. And I got to that chapter where he described what they did to Jesus on the cross, what they actually did to him. And something happened to me. I found God. I can't tell you how. I can't tell you the mechanism. I wish I could, I would patent it. <laughs> Something happened to me, and to my way of seeing it now, I became born again. I was never able to help my brother, but it certainly helped me. But remember me telling you about how my father was trying to make us into his image? Well, it left a few scars in my life too. I don't know if you've ever had any scars left in your life from your upbringing or the choices you've made over the years. But after man, I won't go through that whole story, but after I became a lawyer and began practicing law and why anyone with a fear of rejection and the need for acceptance of others would choose to be a trial lawyer defies logic <laughs> because you're constantly being confronted with that issue.
That's the nature of the beast. But I, I was. Marty, you know what I'm talking about. And it would get so bad that the fear of an encounter, even a simple thing like picking up the phone and calling the other lawyer and telling him something he didn't want to hear, knowing he would reject it, or going before a judge, risking that I would be rejected, my client had been relying on me, was terrifying. I, I became a great procrastinator. If I put it off, it won't be so bad. Well, remember me telling you how you never know how these things happen when they happen and how God does it? I was reading, this was years later, I was reading a little book and I brought it today, written by a Christian psychiatrist called The Christian Life in the Unconscious. It's a study about the darker side of human nature and psychology and all of this stuff. Well, I got to a certain place in this book And it occurred to me something I had not been seeing, that fear of rejection, the need for acceptance by everyone was a sin. Why? Because it separated me from him. I was not trusting on him. I was trusting in my ability to maneuver and manipulate and procrastinate and operate. I've got, I have the pages marked where I think the inspiration came from, but I could let you borrow it. It doesn't say that, but God said that. And not only that, he said, my word to you is, if you've sinned, what's, what's the remedy? 1 John 1, 1.9 says, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just and will forgive you of your sin and will continuously, as a present ongoing tense, continuously cleanse you from all, all unrighteousness. So I said, okay. If that's true, and I believe it is, I'll put it in practice. The next time I became afraid of rejection, which probably a day or two later, <laughs> I would stop and say, Lord, I feel I'm afraid right now. I'm afraid that this lawyer's not going to accept our proposal and we'll have to go to trial and we might lose it. I admit to you I'm afraid. I confess that to you as sin. It's separating me from you. I'm not being all that you want me to be in this circumstance. And I believe that you forgive me. And I'm a human being, though. I still have a body with emotions, a soul. And I still have the feeling. I still have the feeling. But in faith and in trust, I'm going to do that very thing in spite of my feeling, my emotions at the moment. And I would pick up the phone and call. You know what? I learned some amazing things. I began to do that each time. 
And it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. That was the first lesson. The second lesson is that there was a change in some part of me. You know the, the Peanuts cartoon? And Linus had a cloud hanging over his head. I like to use that as a metaphor. The cloud of fear of rejection and the need for acceptance lifted off of me. I, t I kid you not, it was about two or three months at the most. And the other thing I learned, and which is my lesson for you, it wasn't limited to fear. Whatever is hindering you in your thought life, in your habits, maybe even your DNA, I don't know. If you apply his formula, he wants to transform you by a renewing of your mind. I've kept this little book. I call it a monument of my memories. I want to remember that something happened with that. Not what it says. That's not important. It's even gotten torn on the corner, right? It's not a shrine. But it's remembering when God changed me and gave me some answers for you and for me. Okay. I believe with all my heart that there is nothing of your makeup that's a trouble to you in the area of thought, choices, habits, emotions that God cannot change if you're willing to put your trust in him. Now, I've crafted a diagram. I don't want to apologize for my artwork because I'm not a graphic artist by any means. But I want to depict, see if I can get this. Before I do, one lesson. In Luke chapter 12, uh, Jesus encounters a rich man, I think it was. Or he tells a parable. And, and he says, uh, the rich man says, he's accumulated great wealth. And he says, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many good things that you've accumulated for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself merrily. And Jesus said, in effect, bad advice. That's going to lead you to death. He said, but God said to him, you fool, this very night, the messenger of God will demand your soul of you and all the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? <laughs> They'll be gone. And I only bring this parable up because it helps me to talk about addressing my soul as I put this lesson into play. Now for the diagrams. This circle represents your body and soul, okay? The little arrows pointing out, see, I think I've got a pointer here. The little arrows 
represent your encounter with circumstances in the world, okay? Keep in mind it's an image, folks. It's not a theological representation of reality. These, you can't read them because it's so small, but I've listed qualities of human nature that people have. Good, good things and not so good things. Good habits, bad habits, procrastination, decisiveness. In other words, we all have some of each, right? And in the center is this depiction, and if it reminds you of a heart shape, that was deliberate. My perceptions receive all of these things, and my will makes a decision. Now, God, on the other hand, and I've shown this in the heart shape as well, not that God looks like a heart, a cardiac organ, but it's representative of God's Holy Spirit connected through you to your inner being. Before you were born again by this depiction, you can't quite see it, but it says here in small letters, my spirit. Your spirit has a stopper in it before you were born again. A plug. It's still there. But all of this blessing that he wants to give can't get in there. You have chosen by, by your nature before you met Jesus to do that. Now let's take it a step further. In this diagram, the stopper has been removed and allows God's spirit to flow through your spirit into your inner being, your heart. If you notice, it's not complete yet. And if you, if you were able to see the uh, little circles, which you can't, but some of the bad things are gone. Not all of them yet, but some of them are. And the good ones are still there. And the final diagram, you're complete. His spirit is so changed, your soul, body, and spirit, that it's like you and he are operating together. In the law, we have a concept called a partnership. That means every partner has to agree before a decision can be made and an action taken. In the completed, renewed mind, you and God are partners and friends, Jesus said. Jesus said, you're not my servants, you're my friends. Well, what's a friend? C.S. Lewis describes it the best I've ever read. It said, friends, lovers stand face to face, expecting something from each other. Friends stand side by side because they share a common objective. As you walk through life, you and God are friends. <clears throat> and I suggest to you that it doesn't matter.
this change that I'm advocating will happen if you take each aspect of your life that's a problem and confess it, put your trust in him, and do something in that very area. If it's worry, go, look, go do the thing you're worried about. Even though you still feel like it, go do it. If it's fear, go act. If it's not loving somebody because you can't seem to give and you don't feel like giving, act like you love them and you'll change. And I suggest to you that it doesn't matter this change, whether God's rearranging the neuronal patterns in your brain so that it has a physical explanation of how feelings, there's some logic to support that. Or he says that it happens. Or something different we haven't learned yet. It doesn't matter if you put your trust in him and act on it. And then watch and see what he does in that area. And then share it with somebody. And you'll see that that change begins to take place. We are made body, soul, and spirit. God wants you to allow your spirit to be a conduit from him take over your soul so that you and he have a common objective that to carry out his plan for you. Colossians 1.27 says, To whom God was pleased to make known how great for the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ within and among you, the hope of realizing the glory. My interpretation of that is God's plan is that you would be fulfilled and realized into the image by transformation that he planned from the beginning before the first star was created. Take these steps starting with your first thoughts during the day in the area of your trouble and watch and see if whether or not the wind will blow through you to God's greater glory. I want to close with a little lighter subject. How many of you are familiar with My Fair Lady, the musical, Rodgers and Hammerstein? Okay, and Professor Henry Higgins, remember the story? And Well, I took part of, uh, I can't sing, so I, won't, I will read it, though. Uh, I took part of a dialogue between Henry Higgins and Colonel Pickering about a woman in his life. Remember that song? And I've changed it. Okay? I'm an ordinary man who desires nothing more than an ordinary chance to live exactly as he likes and do precisely what he wants. An average man am I of no eccentric whim who likes to live his life free of strife doing whatever he thinks is best for him. Just an ordinary man. But since I let his spirit in my life, 
My selfishness is through. While before it was whatever suited only me, now it seems it's what suits him and me and you. I'm no longer an ordinary man. I've found my courage is renewed. What bothered me most is lost. I'll have new beginnings each day with no matter what it costs. I've let his spirit in my life. My ordinariness is through. I've found I only want to please him. And the surprise is, it's now all I really want to do. I told Kurt I wanted to have communion at the end, and I want to do it in a way that uh, you maybe not have heard before. Um, as most of you know, I'm involved in a prison ministry. We have an organization called the Fisherman's Union. Paul Weston, I don't know if he's here today or not, but Paul Weston and I are members. We go to the special offender unit at Monroe, which is the prison where they send inmates that can't get along in the general prison population. Tough cases, a lot of drug addicts, former drug addicts, alcoholics, emotionally disturbed, they're all on meds. It's an it's a interesting field of missionary work. Anyway, um, they have a, before I get to that, I've looked at this sacrifice of Christ on the cross by God, of his son, and the way it makes the most sense to me, and I'm not a theologian, is God created man, me, you, with, because he wanted to have a relationship with him. He paid him an incredible compliment to give him a choice to reject him. And he had to know because God knows everything. And in many cases, the choices would be bad. And you don't have to be as much of a student of history to see that that's reality. So what would you do if you were God and you created this dilemma between relationship and consequence of rejection? Somebody has to pay. Somebody has to pay the price. So he paid it because it was his choice that created it. How did he do it? A baby in a manger, we just celebrated Christmas. He led him to the cross, died a horrible death, but made it possible that if you believe in him and what he did, through this process I've been describing today, he can transform you so that you can have relationship with him, which was his plan for you. Now, back to communion. In, uh, at SOU, the Special Offender Unit, they have what they call lockdown. Anytime you get in a fight or mouth off at a guard or something, they put you in lockdown. Some of those guys have been in there for years. Okay, it's a tough place. And so I came up with this example to the men I said, suppose I'm an inmate, and I talk you guys into doing something that you know will violate the rules, and it gets you to agree to it, and then it falls apart. 
And they all get caught, but I don't. I started it. What if I could go to the authorities and say, it wasn't their fault. I did it. Put me in lockdown and let them go back to their cells. And they did. So I thought about that and I shared this with the men. When we think about what God did through his son, how can we relate to that marvelous gift that he gave us by thinking about why he did it and that he did it for me. So take this bread and every time you eat it, remember that God of all goodness, all glory, all majesty, thought enough of his relationship with you that he was willing to give it all. Take and eat. And when you take the cup, we have a concept in the law called a covenant. When you buy property, there's a covenant. That means it stays with the land forever. When you drink this cup, this is a covenant that he sealed it. Remember that each time you do it.